Okay, guys, grab your, your Bibles and open with me to uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Now, um, before I tell you exactly what portion of Romans 6, 7, and 8, I need to explain something. Um, we are wrapping up this morning um, the, the summer series that has... Um, that's really gone under several titles. Um, my title was The Life That I Now Live. Remember that clause out of Galatians 2.20? And I lifted that clause and kind of entitled the series The Life That I Now Live. Uh, another title uh, uh, that was used is Mortification of the Flesh. That's the, that's the title that the, the Puritans would have used. Mortification of the Flesh. Then, then uh, the, the title that I think is the most understandable... And the most workable and applicable to, to folks listening is just, how does a Christian change? How, how do we change into conformity with Christ? You, you can think of this series as kind of my, um, my version of vision casting. You know, gang, in, in, in Christian circles... There's a lot of books that are written about spiritual leadership. Well, one of those books, written by a a very well-known author that you would know if I mentioned his name, uh, was a book that we as the staff studied uh, a few years back. And and, um, uh, the first chapter in the book, which I took great issue with, the first chapter in his book was vision. As if to say... That the, the foremost component of spiritual leadership is vision of the leader. You know, and when they use the word vision, they're, they're using it like this, you know, um, 10,000 by 2,000. Or, you remember the book that I, um, that I alluded to about the girl who spent a year, I mean, an hour in the broom closet every morning? Well, the, the president of that Bible college talked about having 2,000 students by the end of the decade. And what normally when you hear that term vision in, in these books, they're talking about where the church is going to go and what buildings we're going to build and how many people, all that business. Well, here's my version of vision. You know where I want Gracie Van to go? <laughs> here's where I'd like for us to go. Into Christ-likeness. As a body and as individuals. And guys, I, I hope that this series has helped a little bit in that regard. You know, I, I said in one of the sermons, I said, um, there is nothing more obvious than the need for change. But there is nothing less obvious than how that change takes place. You know, I don't think there's a person in this room, I don't think there's a person anywhere associated with a Gracie Van who wouldn't say, yeah, there's certain things about me that need to change. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot that needs to change. We all agree that, that that's needed by all of us. Well, I, I'm, I'm in hopes that these little eight sermons have helped a, a, at least a little in terms of moving us along this, in this process of being conformed to the image of Christ. So guys, um, we're going to 
this morning, go back to Romans 6, 7, and 8. And, and I'm going to kind of gather up some of the, the details of this section as somewhat of a summary. It's not going to be a comprehensive summary, but it's going to be somewhat of a summary of the whole series. I think you, you might remember um, how special these chapters are to me. Um, they were the chapters that God used to put me back together after a dark night of the soul about 25 years ago now. My, my, 25 years ago. But um, so it, for, the, for me, th- these chapters are almost like going home. But the particular emphasis of the morning, which I told you last week, the particular emphasis of the morning is going to be on the role and ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about the change that, um, that we all know is so needed and so necessary for, for each of us. So, what we're going to do is just look at selected passages in, actually, only in 6 and in 8, not even in 7, but just selected passages. Here's, let, me, let me frame the subject. If, if I am so new on the inside as a result of the work of the rebirth, if I'm so new on the inside, why does it feel like I'm so little changed on the outside? Why is this so hard? Why does it take so long? What is it that, that, that is going to change me? I keep bumping up against what seems to be a, a wall that uh, at best slows me down, but at worst stops me completely in any pursuit that I might have of holy living. Why is there so little change? And why is that change so difficult? Well, that's what I want you to, what I think, or the answer to that, those questions, really are found in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I want to start in um, Romans 6. So let me read you a, one text, just one verse, verse 16 out of Romans 6. It reads like this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, guys, we're, again, we're trying to answer, why is this so difficult? Why is change so difficult? Well, that text suggests that all of us, live our lives based on some kind of an identity, some functional sense of who we are uh, or, or, or what we're worth. And whatever that is, however we define our identity, whatever we consider is the, the thing that gives us a sense of worth and significance, it is that thing to which I'm enslaved. Um, now, guys, there are really only two options. Either, either I am a slave of God's or I have some other functional deity, 
some other God substitute uh, by which I gain um, the significant portion or the, the biggest portion of my significance. Guys, do you remember... Do you remember in the movie um, Chariots of Fire? I, I referred to that earlier, but you know when Eric Little said, "I want to run up people." But there's another statement in it that is unbelievable. It's by Harold Abrams. You remember Harold Abrams was the sprinter. Harold Abrams was for for Great Britain, and um, before his race in the Olympics, and gosh, this was 1932 or whenever. Harold Abrams is he's getting a rub down. He's lying on that bench, getting ready for his race, and he he makes this statement. I have 10 seconds to validate my existence. (laughs) I have 10 seconds to validate my existence. Because for me, my whole sense of identity, the thing that gives me my significance, my functional deity, is how I perform in, in these races that I run. And whatever that is, that's the thing that drives my behavior. I make choices based on that thing that is my functional need. It could be beauty. It could be thinness. Obviously not mine. Uh, it could be some political cause. Or, or maybe um, some financial security, or uh, family, kids. But whatever that is, that is my spiritual master. I am enslaved to that. I am under its control. It has me enslaved. And let me tell you what I mean by enslavement. Um, guys, I think it was Paul Tripp who suggested that there were three tests by which I could locate my enslavements. Three things to use to help me locate the things that enslave me. And he suggested these three things. Anger, fear, and sadness. Let me explain what he means. Um, anger. Well, you know, anger happens. Um, but you're not angry. You're infuriated. Over whatever it is that has blocked your goals, it infuriates you. You, you, you lose it. You, you blow up. You're bitter. And forgiveness is, is all but impossible for you. Sullen. Life just hasn't gone the, the way that you thought it should go. So now... You're an angry man. You're an angry woman. You lose a job. And um, it just, it destroys you. Because you're enslaved. That, that anger that is inordinate is indicative that there's something out there that has enslaved me. Financial success, human approval, career goals, anger gone wild is a locator of my enslavements. The second one he mentions is fear. Let's, let's imagine that your functional deity is, is a relationship. 
a romance. And, and that, that relationship is threatened. And because it is, I mean, you're utterly paralyzed. You, 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 you fall apart. You, you, you're overcome with anxiety or you're enslaved. I mean, you promise uh, to that partner of yours, you say, I'll do anything, I'll be anything, I'll become anything, as long as you don't take this relationship from me. That's because you're enslaved. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 6.16, guys. One other thing. Sadness. Guys, um... To lose something that, or someone that we love is always sad. But yours is not just grief. It's grief squared. I mean, you consider suicide. You, you curl up in a fetal position. I don't want to live anymore because you're a slave. And your inordinate sadness has located for you your functional deity. Guys, all of us are angry and have fear and are sad at times. I'm I'm talking about anger and fear and sadness that is controlling. Guys, I know some of you and you're angry men. You're just an angry man, kind of a Jimmy Dean, rebel without a cause kind of guy. And and happens more frequently with men, I guess, but some women too. That's nothing but in, those are locators. They help you locate your, fun, your, your God substitute. Because there's only two things to which people are enslaved. Either God, I'm, a, I'm his slave, or something else is driving my behavior. And it is to that thing that I am psychologically and emotionally and thus volitionally enslaved. Why is it so difficult to change? Because I've got the wrong Functioning deity. Guys, once again, we start in our, in our, in our efforts to answer the question, why is this so difficult? Why does it take so long? What is this that's going to change me? The, the first place that we've got to start is my problem is much bigger than I ever thought. And, and you and I have to reject any perspective on the Christian life that minimizes the war that rages within us. And secondly, everything I need, I have in Jesus Christ. Thinness didn't die for me. Beauty didn't spill any blood for me, but I think I know who did. My... my Financial security, it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, suffer in my place. My political cause offers me no quietude for the clamorings of my soul. 
But guys, if those three things are apparent in me that are out of control, it's because I'm enslaved to the wrong thing. I have a functional deity that is taking the place that only Jesus Christ is to have. Now, again, I'm just trying to answer the question this morning. Why is it so hard? Why does it take so long? And how can I change? Here's the second thing that I want you to notice from these chapters that I I must be aware of. It's chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sin, the flesh of him for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. I am aware that willpower will not work in changing me. And very honestly, I'm in the mess that I'm in because I've leaned on willpower. What the law could not do. What performance standards and gritting my teeth, it could not do it. And I'm in the mess that I'm in because I tried willpower. Guys, um, do you know the, the parable of the prodigal son? Not everybody in this room, I think, knows that. But if you're raised in church, you know the parable of the prodigal son. The guy that went to his dad, give me my money, goes to the faraway country. Guys, in that parable, it's in Luke 15, by the way. If you've never read it, read this afternoon. It's great. But um, in that parable, you do know, don't you, that the elder brother was just as lost as the prodigal son, if not more so. Why? Because the elder brother was insistent that he was going to keep his nose clean. He was going to do everything he was supposed to do. He's going to, you know, meet all the standards, etc., etc. Guys, you know that there are two ways that you can ruin yourself. You can ruin yourself by badness. But you can also ruin yourself by goodness. And my self-made religion will never make me like Christ. It can't do it. And that's why I'm making so little progress. The third thing, again, we're trying to gather up this whole thing in, a, in, a, in somewhat of a summary. The, the third thing is, is found really in, in verse 13 of chapter 8. Let me read that. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, guys, the enslavement that I've discussed that Paul mentions over here in 6.16. Over here in 8.13, he calls the same thing, the enslavement, he calls it over here, living according to the flesh. Which he said in verse 3 of chapter 8 doesn't work. Now he adds, it'll kill you. (laughs) Living according to the flesh, that enslavement, it'll kill me. Why? Because the whole of your life is lived as one grand self-salvation project. An effort to save yourself 
either by goodness or by badness. That life will kill you. So, according to verse 13 of chapter 8, all that needs to be put to death. You see it? How? Notice in the text. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So, guys, all of that self-salvation project, leaning on willpower, leaning on flesh, yada, 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 all of that's got to be put to death. How? Well, it's done according to Paul, by the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? What does that involve? What does that entail? Two things. Again, I'm trying to... What does it mean to put to death a life lived according to the flesh? It's going to involve a couple of things. First of all, look right above that in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Gang, putting to death the flesh means, first of all, it means a new mindset. It means that my mind is set on different things. So tell me, what preoccupies your thinking? What has captured your imagination? What excites you? Is it sexual fantasy? Or perhaps the, the privileges of wealth? Maybe it's the intoxication of, of personal approval and, and fan applause. Maybe that's it. Well, if it is, ladies and gentlemen, that is your functional deity. The thing on which you set your mind will locate for you your functional deity. It is that thing. It is to that thing that you are enslaved. It is a mind set on the flesh. And it must be put to death and replaced by a mind. Look at the text. A mind set on the spirit. What is it that is functioning in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional Savior? What are, what are you looking to to justify your existence, to save you? That's got to be put to death. And it's done. It's done by, first of all, setting my mind on the things of the Spirit. But, guys... The second part of that, it is not just, it's not just your thinking that matters. Notice in the text, look in verse 5. They, they um, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit, guys, they're more than just thoughts. They're things. The Spirit has things. The Spirit has some things. Not just a new mindset. There's some new things. And I want to call those, for the sake of this argument, I want to call those disciplines. Gang, any excellence in anything requires disciplines. A musician. 
got to play those scales and play those scales and play those scales and play those scales until your knuckles are bloody. Playing the scales because excellence requires some disciplines. Guys, but listen to me. Don't, don't mistake me. Excellence is, does not consist in the presence of disciplines nor in the absence of disciplines, but in the presence of the right disciplines. The things of the Spirit are things that are true to my nature. They're, they're true to the, who I am. They are, they are in, in accordance with the truth. Let, let, me, let me try to illustrate. Let's imagine that you're a 22-year-old male, and you have been told all of your life that you can be anything that you want to be. And so as a 22-year-old male, you have always dreamed of being an NFL linebacker. There's just a couple of problems. You're 5'3", and you weigh 125 pounds. All the disciplines in the world are not going to help you. We are looking for the disciplines that are true to our nature. You take a fish out of water, it's a dead fish. You take a train off the track, it's a train wreck. We're looking for the disciplines of the Spirit that are true to who we are and in accordance with the truth. Those are things, guys, things like, I hate to give you a list because you start making a list and we don't want to want a list. But let me give you an example. Bible study. That's not rocket science, now is it? But my friends... How many of you are neglecting Bible study so you can play more soccer? And then you wonder, why is this so hard? Why is it taking me so long? Why do I have all this? Why can't I break this ugly habit of internet pornography? Because the things of the Spirit... The disciplines of the Spirit don't exist in you. So, guys, we try to... How does the Christian turn the corner? How do we make progress? Well, here it is, in a sentence. Having put to death By the Spirit, this life lived according to the flesh. I then go on to mind the things of the Spirit. At every turn, the power is the Spirit's. Willpower will never make me humble. And oh, how many of you know how much I need to be humble. But I can't produce it. What happens is, I think, I don't think, I'm pretty, I know. It is the Holy Spirit's work that makes Jesus real to me. He, he, that is, the Holy Spirit smites me with the beauty of Christ and, and, and Christ crucified. 
It's by the Spirit that I'm, I'm captured. And being captured and, and enlivened by the Spirit, that shows up in Spirit-empowered disciplines. I am enthralled. I'm captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ, made visible to the eyes of my soul by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And that fleshes itself out in the things to which I give myself, the disciplines which become valuable. And I will not neglect. Gang, that's as clear as I can be. Why is it so hard? Why does it take so long? What will change us? I, that's all I got. Well, that's not, that's not a completely true. One more thing, and we're done. Have you ever heard of this text? Um, not by might. Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Have you ever heard of that text? In a lot of ways, it is, it is the summary of the whole redemption process. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's, it's found in a kind of an out-of-the-way place. It's tucked into one of the minor prophets that we don't spend much time on, the book of Zechariah. It's chapter 4, verse 6. And in its historical setting, what God is saying is, in terms of... The reconstruction and rebuilding of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, it will be, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's a, it's a post-exilic. You know what that means? It's after the exile. Uh, after they went off for 70 years into Babylon, they've come back, and now God says, we're going to rebuild this thing, and it's not by power, not by might, not by spirit, but, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's where it's found. But I'm saying that in, in, in a lot of ways, it's a summary. It's a summary of the whole redemptive process. I was born by the Spirit and I continue by the Spirit. But just to illustrate it, hopefully, in a way that you'll remember. Do you remember, do you remember the, um, the name Gideon? Remember that guy? <laughs> Gideon is the, is the fellow that was chosen. I mean, if you, if you were raised in church, you remember the name at least. Let me tell you about him. He's, he's the guy that was chosen by God to uh, lead Israel in a battle against the Midianites. This is in Judges 6 and 7. Um, and uh, <laughs> Gideon's first response was, Oh, my goodness, you must, uh, you must have gotten something wrong here. I mean, you must have taken a wrong turn because, uh, you know, you don't want me. Uh, you know, my, 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 uh, my, I'm the least in my father's family, and uh, my father's family is the least in all the tribes of Israel. I mean, you don't want me. A rather diffident young man is he. Um, so God said, no, no, you're, you're the one. You're the one I want. Um, and so, you know, Gideon kind of struggling with that whole idea. You know, I don't, I can't imagine you wanting me to do this. Uh, he goes outside one night and he says, um, uh, you're going to have to prove it to me. Now, you remember that he's the one with the fleece. Remember that? We talk about putting out a fleece. Well, that's from Gideon. Gideon's the one that did that. He put out a fleece and he says, I want it to be wet on the fleece and dry around it. One night, he says, oh, okay, that's pretty good. Next night, he says, I want it to be dry on the fleece and wet on the ranch. So God does that and says, okay, well, I guess I am the guy. So finally, he gets convinced that I'm the one supposed to lead Israel against the Midianites. And so he goes out with an army of 32,000 up against the Midianite army of 140,000. Not very good odds. 
But I mean, uh, you know, it's reasonable. Three against one, maybe four against one. If you can, if you can take out four a, a piece, we'll be fine. So God looks at that army and says, I can't do it with that army. I mean, it's just uh, that army is, uh, dead, you know, it's too big. It's too big. And so here's what I want you to do, uh, Gideon. I want you to go to your army and I want you to tell them anybody that's nervous or fearful or trembling, I want you to go on back home. So 22,000 of them, pick him up on it. So overnight, he's down to 10,000. His army of 32 is down to 10. So God looks at that army and he says, that, that, you know, uh, that's still too big. Still too big. You're going to have to whittle it down some more. And so he does this real strange thing about taking the army of 10,000 over to the river to ask it and watch them drink water. And he ends up with 300 of them. So another 9,700 get dismissed. And so he's down to an army of 300 against 140,000. And, um, you know, God says to Gideon, he says, um, uh, the people with you are too many for me to, to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Do you see what that, what are we saying? You know, God uh, is going to send him out to battle, but he says, you know, I don't want at the end of this thing for Israel to say, well, the reason that we, uh, that we, uh, that we won this fight is because we had such a great army of 32,000. So God whittles it down and whittles it down and whittles it down. And then they go out with a bunch of torches and trumpets and pitchers. Those are fine pieces of weaponry, now don't you think? And they rout the Midianites. Just rout them. You know what the lesson of that is? The lesson is, not by power, not by might. But by my spirit, says the Lord. My brother and sister in Christ, listen to me. Anything that happens in us that is worth keeping is something that the Holy Spirit of God did. Be done with all that confidence in the flesh. By the Spirit, put to death the life lived according to the flesh. And mind the things of the Spirit. Our Father, I, I pray that you will use this to help your people. We are, uh, we are an interesting lot. We are um, we're stumbling all over ourselves trying to figure out how to become more like Jesus, and uh, so much of it is our own fault. So, Father, would you, um, would you grant us a sense of, um, of dependence, a sense of reliance, a sense of urgency, a sense of need for the power and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Would you do that, Father, not, not because we deserve anything from your hand, but because we, because we long, we, we long to be more like the Savior. Would you, would, you, would you operate in us in such a way, O oh God, that we would find ourselves making progress, maybe for the first time for many of us, but making progress as we, um, as we try to make strides in this walk with Jesus Christ. Do that, O oh God. For the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.